This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 52, Krishna Reveals Himself. Last time, we started the chapter titled, The Coming of the Lord, in which Krishna volunteered to go in person to Hastinapur to negotiate for the Pandavas' side. The Karvas sort of overreacted to his arrival. Dhritarashtra wanted to bribe him, while Duryodhana wanted to imprison him. Krishna sensed the bad vibes and refused to even eat with them. Krishna stayed at Vidur's house and only ventured out to visit Kunti and to negotiate with the Kauravas. I have a theory that perhaps Karna was not so much the result of a magic spell, but rather the product of child abuse at the hands of the Sadhu Durvasas. When meeting with her nephew, Kunti hinted that I may be correct, because she placed the blame for all her life's suffering on her father's careless decision to send her to live with Kunti Boja when she was still a defenseless child. She doesn't go into any more details than that, leaving me to continue with my speculations. Finally, Krishna is summoned before the assembly of the king to present his case. Krishna gives such a persuasive argument that it left the opposition speechless. It so happened that a gaggle of immortal rishis had followed Krishna on his mission so they could witness the beginning of the great war. Among them was Rama Jamadagni, also called Parashuram. This famous warrior priest was the first to break the silence. He offered to tell a few parables to help the king make up his mind. Rama told the story of Dambodbhava, who was, in ancient times, the emperor of the world. Rama said that after this guy had conquered the world, he became so puffed up with pride that he spent all his time trying to prove that he was the toughest guy in the world. He would go to the ascetic Brahmins and tease them, bragging about how he could do anything he wanted and no one could stop him. These Brahmins eventually got annoyed with this uppity king and told him, King, there's a pair of ascetics who have gone unrivaled from incarnation to incarnation. You would not stand a chance against these guys. This piqued the king's interest. He wanted to know all about these guys. He couldn't believe that a couple of emaciated sadhus could really stand up to his imperial army. The Brahmins said, From what we've heard, this pair are called Nar and Narayan. Rumor has it that they are up at Mount Gandamadana, performing indescribably severe self-mortifications. The king then amassed his vast army and marched it to the sacred hermitage at Mount Gandamadana. When he arrived there, he greeted the pair of ascetics respectfully, touching their feet. Nar asked him his business, and the king told him that he'd run out of people to fight, and he'd heard that Nar and Narayan were his only rivals for his glory. He said, so let's fight. Nara said, why do you want to fight us? Anger and greed are banished from this place. Go do your fighting elsewhere. India is infested with Kshatriyas, so go fight one of them. King Dambodbhava was determined, however, and he challenged them to a fight. Nara then slowly stood up, his bones creaking, a veritable walking skeleton, and picked up a handful of grass. The king cringed a bit when he realized that he picked a fight with someone with the physique of a cancer patient, armed with only a handful of grass. But Nara returned the challenge, and that was enough for the bellicose king. Nara said, Okay then, bring it on. I'll teach you to respect peace a little better. King Dambodbhava then signaled his army to begin fighting. His archers rained arrows down on the starving ascetic. Using the grass stalks, Nara deflected all the missiles and then tossed a handful into the air. Each strand shot off towards its own target, killing and disabling all of the king's archers. The king was quick to realize that he'd met his match. He called off his attack and threw himself at Nara's mercy. Nara forgave him and instructed him to follow his dharma and to embrace peace. Rama concluded his story, saying that while Nara had easily defeated this emperor, Narayan was even more powerful. 
Today, Nara has returned, but now he's called Arjun, and Arjun's arrows are vastly more destructive than stalks of grass. Rama said, You know him as Kunti's son Dhananjaya, but be aware that Arjun and Keshava and Narnarayan are one and the same. Now ponder this and decide for yourself what is in your best interest. Again, however, before the Karavas could make up their minds, another sage offered to tell a story. This time it was the Rishi Kanva who told the story of Matali and his daughter. Kanva reminds us that Matali was Indra's charioteer, and once, a long time ago, he had a daughter named Gunakeshi, and he had a hell of time finding a worthy husband for her. It seems that she was a spirited girl because Matali was concerned that she could ruin three families by her bad behavior, her mother's family, her father's family, and the family of her unhappy bridegroom. We are not given any details about this domestic problem, except that we are told that Matali was unable to find a suitor for his daughter in neither heaven nor on earth. She was either too good for them, or they were too good for her. Getting desperate, Matali decided to journey to the subterranean realms to find her a husband. He hoped that perhaps a reptilian snake person would make a good match for Gunakeshi. With his master's permission, Matali set off for Varuna's undersea realm. Along the way, he encountered the sage Narada, who, it turned out, was also heading to see Varuna. From the previous story of Savitri, it seems that Narada takes particular interest in people's matrimonial affairs. See episode 43. Because, when he learned of Matali's mission, Narada offered to guide him through the underworld and help him find a son-in-law. Beginning at Varuna's golden palace, Narada led Matali on a whirlwind tour of the seven levels of the underworld. In Varuna's palace, they saw the Gandava bow, awaiting the day when Arjun would take it up and herald the end of an age. This reliquary also included a staff for fighting Rakshasas and an umbrella that brought rain wherever it went. Not finding a suitor here, the pair moved on to the center of the world of the elephants, the city of Patala. Narada said this city is inhabited by Daityas and Danavas, and the subterranean rivers empty their waters here. The city is also home to the Asura fire, which sounds like a fusion reactor, in that the fire feeds on water, but is contained in this one location. According to Narada, Patala was the very spot where, after the gods defeated the Asuras, they got together and drank the elixir of immortality. Here also, the waters of the world are recycled by the great elephant Airavata, who drinks up the water and then shoots it out of its trunk into the clouds, whence Indra rains it down on the earth. Narada asked Matali if he saw any suitable grooms down here, but Matali said, No one pleases me down here. Let's move on. Narada then took him to a suburb of Patala called Hiranyapur. It seems that this is the very same flying city that Arjun later destroyed, because it was inhabited by the Danava Nivatakavakas, the beings in airtight spacesuits, whom Indra was unable to subjugate. See episode 35. Matali admired the splendor and wealth of these demonic palaces. But considering that these guys were his boss's eternal enemies, he didn't feel right making a marriage alliance with one of them. So they moved on to the world of the Garudas. Narada said, The Garuda is a great eagle, the king of the birds, who feeds on the snake people. His descendants are called the Garudas, and this is where they live. Perhaps disdaining this sort of interspecies breeding, Matali had no interest in the Garudas either, so they moved on. As they traveled, the pair passed by a huge sea of milk. There, the mother of all cows, called Surabi, was born from the Amrit, and her ever-flowing milk fed this vast sea. On its shores lived a group of ascetics who lived off the froth from the sea. They are called the foam drinkers, and even the gods fear them. 
Finally, they arrived at Bhogavati, the city of the snakes. This place was infested with all kinds of snakes, ranging from Vishnu's buddy Adisesha, the cosmic snake, to old Takshaka, who would later, one day, become Janamajaya's killer. Matali saw tens of millions of snakes, but there's one in particular that caught his eye. The charioteer asked Narada the snake's name and family. Narada said its name was Sumuka, son of Chikura, who was recently killed and eaten by Garuda. For whatever reason, Matali set his hopes on making this fellow his son-in-law. So Narada approached Sumuka's guardian, his grandfather, Aryaka, and introduced Matali, giving his antecedents and credentials. Aryaka was warm to the idea of the marriage, but he had some bad news. He said, while the idea of marrying Sumuka to your daughter would be a fine match, I'm afraid there's a problem. You see, his father was recently eaten by the eagle Lord Garuda, and the bird said he'd be back next month to eat Sumuka. But Matali's mind was made up. Besides, he had powerful friends upstairs. So, Matali and Narada took Sumuka along with them to ask Indra for help. When they found him, Indra was hanging out with Vishnu. Indra really wanted to help, so he asked Vishnu to give the snake a taste of the Amrit. Vishnu weighed Garuda's interests against Indra's request, and he denied them the elixir. Instead, Indra did what he could by granting Samuka great health and longevity. Old Garuda soon caught wind of what had happened, and he flew swiftly to Devaloka to lodge a complaint. The bird complained that he had served the gods diligently, and had been given the snakes as his food source for himself and all his children in return. Garuda had already set the date for eating Samuka, but now that had been thwarted. He griped, What do you expect us to do now? I imagine we're going to all starve. What right do you have to take away our natural food? After all we've done for you. Without me, who else can bear you into battle? The strength of my wings keeps the whole world in balance. Indra scoffed, saying, You don't carry my weight, I carry my own weight, and you just fly beneath me. You couldn't even hold up one of my arms without my power. As a demonstration, he rested his arm on the bird, and it crushed him to the ground. The king of the birds realized he had been overproud, and he apologized to the king of the gods. Kamva concluded his story to the Kurus, saying, Just as the mighty and powerful Garuda was a weakling compared to his master, so should you realize your weakness in relation to the Pandavas. Duryodhana just cast a glance at Karna and laughed. He slapped his thigh and said, I'm still just going to do what I was created to do, so what use is there in all this prattling? Bhishma again scolded his grandnephew, saying, Krishna has told you what you need to do if you want success and happiness. Now listen to his advice, lest you lead your people to ruin. Drona seconded Bhishma, telling Duryodhana he really had no option but comply with Krishna's demands. Vidur then spoke to all these luminaries, saying, I pity all of you and the king's wife Gandhari, that soon you shall not have a younger generation alive to care for you. It appears that the king's sons are not long for this world. Duryodhana tried to plead his case to Krishna. He said, Why are you guys always against me? What have I done that is so bad? My father kindly let them use a portion of our kingdom, and then they lost it back to us fair and square. It seemed at first that they are going to follow the rules, but now they are back demanding more from us. I have only followed my dharma. It's my duty to defend my lands, and I intend to fight for them until the bitter end. Dushasan then said to his elder brother, I think your elders have all turned against you. It sounds like they're about to tie you up and hand you over to your enemies out of fear of their threats. Duryodhana let out a loud hiss and strode out of the chamber, followed by his brothers and cronies. In reaction, Krishna said, Actually, that sounds like a good idea. It sounds like your son is criminally insane. 
There are times when it is better to restrain one of your relatives when they are leading you to perdition. Krishna then cited the case of his relative Kamsa, who had deposed his own father, Ugrasena, and made himself king. He said, Kamsa was deserted by his relatives, and I deposed him in battle, and restored good King Ugrasena to the great benefit and happiness of all the people. He concluded, Likewise, you should lock up Duryodhana, Karna, Shakuni, and Dushasan, hand them over to the Pandavas. If you do that, you will have peace and will spare the lives of all the Kshatriyas in your service. Dhritarashtra said to Vidur, Go now and fetch the queen and bring back Duryodhana. Maybe his mother can talk some sense into him. Vidur faithfully carried out the king's orders. Gandhari took a seat near her husband, while Duryodhana re-entered the court, spitting and hissing angrily as he came in. Gandhari gave him a long, motherly lecture, speaking for his own best interest. Like mothers often do, she blamed the friends he kept around him. She particularly disliked the low-caste son of Asuta, Karna. But Duryodhana was too far gone to listen even to his own mother. Her pleas, advice, and scolding all had no effect. The boy heard her out, but made no reply. When she was done, he went straight back to his buddies. Shakuni said, My nephew, it seems that even your own mother has had her head turned, and she too is against you. You are on your own now. I advise that you take matters into your own hands before your own mother and father betray you to your enemies. Dushasan agreed. He said, Victory goes to the bold. Let's strike first before they can get prepared. If we put Krishna out of commission now, the Pandavas will be helpless against us. So forget about your father's wishes and let's move fast. Somehow, Krishna's friend and kinsman Setyaki got wind of this conspiracy, and he rushed to the assembly to warn the others. On his way, he warned Krishna's bodyguard and told them to prepare for action. Then he entered the court and announced what they had in mind. Vidur said, Holy crap, we shall soon see the demise of the crown prince. No one can attempt such a reckless act and survive. I only wonder how Krishna will allow the Pandavas to fulfill their many vows if their rivals are burned to a crisp. Krishna said, Don't worry. If they go too far, the Pandavas will be happy to hear that I've solved all their problems. I will bundle them up and take them straight to the Pandavas. It will save us a lot of trouble. Furious, Dhritarashtra summoned his son and conspirators. He and his crew defiantly entered the king's presence. Dhritarashtra lost his cool. He yelled, You malicious brute! You and your vile band of friends are conspiring to commit the most heinous of crimes. You foolishly think you can ambush the lotus-eyed Kesheva. You could more easily subdue the moon. Not even the combined forces of the gods, asuras, gandharvas, and snakes could accomplish such a thing. Vidur chimed in, listing many of Krishna's achievements that we covered back in the Krishna episodes. Then, Krishna decided to make a demonstration. He said, If you think you can ambush and overpower me, then clearly you think I am just an average Joe. In fact, what stands before you is the Pandavas and the gods, the Adityas, Rudras, Vasus, and Rishis. Then he laughed heartily, and out of his torso sprang the thirty gods. Brahma appeared from his forehead, Shiva on his chest, and Agni came from his mouth. Then the Pandavas and all their countless allies appeared to be a part of him, all shining with the light of a million suns. All those present were blinded by this light, except for his disciples. Vidor, Bhishma, Drona, and Sanjay. The heavenly drums sounded and flowers fell from the sky. When the spectacle ended, Krishna left the assembly. At the same time, Narada and his fellow sages disappeared. I guess they saw what they'd come to see. That's all for now. Next time, Krishna gives up and goes home. But first, he'll get a final message from Aunt Kunti, and he'll stop over at Karna's place to stir up some trouble among the Karvas 
by telling the son of Asuta who his real mother is. Thanks for listening. Thank you.